Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Kofi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. We're very excited today because we're doing something that, frankly, the two hosts on this one don't know that much about. Uh, I have Kate with me today and for reasons that will become apparent very quickly because we all know where Kate is based. Kate, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Who have we got with us? We've got Jonathan Whitehead with us today, who's an historian who's lived and worked in Spain for decades. His book, Franco, The History to the Defeat, was published in 2018 and was an account of life under the dictatorship. We're here today to talk about his latest work, which looks at Spanish Republicans in the Second World War. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. This is going to be very good. This is something, like as I said, that neither of us really know anything about. So we are excited to learn from you. Um, the story of what happened to the Republicans after their defeat by Franco is not well known. Why is it important? Well, I think the first thing to say is that, of, of course, because the Second World War is important. So all things related to that are important. But specifically, the story of the Republicans is that for so long they were excluded from history. They were excluded from history books. There was no mention of the Spanish Republicans in, in any history book or in, in, in any review of what happened. And they made an important contribution. And as we'll talk later, one particular person made a huge contribution to the Allied war effort. Um, I, I, I've, I've dragged my family all around the world to sort of remote places like Hiroshima and Pearl Harbor and Auschwitz to see all, the, all these places related to the Second World War. And everywhere you go around like Moscow, the, um, the underground stations in Moscow, there are all these tributes to, um, to the people who served, the people who died, the people who suffered in the Second World War, but no mention of the Republicans. And I just thought, enough, they deserve to be, um, they deserve to be remembered and celebrated. Okay, so let's start with a really quick look at the layman. Uh, look for, for the layman, sorry, at who the Republicans are. Um, so, I mean, I, uh, um, as regular listeners are familiar with, I live in Spain, but even, even I'm not really sure. So who are the Republicans? What do they stand for during the Spanish Civil War? Okay, um, I, I'll try to be brief, but this is <laughs> such, such a big question. 
essentially, the Second Republic was proclaimed in 1931. The, the king, Alfonso XIII, who in fact, and his English wife, Victoria Eugenia, um, left Spain because they realized that the um, monarchy was deeply unpopular. And rather than abdicate, they decided they were just going to exile. At this point, the Second Republic was proclaimed. Um, everybody in Spain, sorry, everybody in Spain, no. Large numbers of people, particularly on the left, assumed that this was the end to all their problems. That the Second Republic was going to convert Spain into a modern, dynamic, progressive country. Okay. Uh, first of all, there was a left-wing government and there was a lot of social reform, but the next elections were won by the Conservatives who undid all the reforms. So we come to 1936. There's a general election at the beginning of 1936, which is won by the Popular Front which is an electoral coalition of the center-left parties, the Republican parties, the Socialist Party and the Communist Party. They win the elections and a government is formed by the center-left Republican parties with the parliamentary support of the Socialists and the Communists who aren't actually in the government, but support it. The summer of 1936, a group of disaffected um, army generals with the support of the church, the industrialists, the big landlord, landowners and a minuscule fascist party, which is called the Falange, which had won no seats in the election. They decided that they were not going to put up with this and organized a coup d'etat. The coup d'etat failed essentially because the people of the big cities rebelled against it. And they, the army, these army generals failed to take cities like Madrid, Barcelona, Valencia, and so on. But rather than stand down, these generals who'd seen that the coup d'etat had failed carried on and the country simply descended into a civil war, a civil war between those loyal to the Republic, loyal to the legitimately democratically election, elected government in Madrid and those that supported the disaffected generals. So the Republicans are essentially the people who were loyal to the regime, to the official democratic legitimate regime. Unfortunately, now to cut it short, because otherwise yeah. they, lost. <laughs> they lost, as we know, yeah. history knows, General Franco won with the support of Hitler and Mussolini, and the Republicans lost. Therefore, they were the defeated, the vanquished. Let's start with the fall of Barcelona for the purposes of your story then, at the beginning of 1939. What did that mean for Spain and for the Spanish Republicans? Where do they go? Yeah, uh, by this point, Barcelona had become the centre of government because the, yeah. of the, the government had moved from Madrid to Valencia and finally to, um, to Barcelona. So it was, in that sense, the, the centre of the government of the Republic. Uh, the Republican army had been destroyed at the Battle of the Ebro, which is the battle preceding the, the offensive in Catalonia. The um, Franco's armies just walked straight through Catalonia, took um, uh, Barcelona. Uh, and that really was the end. Although uh, it, the war carried on for a couple of months, really everybody saw then the writing was on the wall and it was all over. The, the, the Republican masses in Catalonia then fled and they fled northwards, obviously, to the Pyrenees, hoping to find refuge in France. And that's where the story really begins because nearly half a million refugees left Catalonia and crossed the Pyrenees into France in January, February of 1939. It was one of the great humanitarian catastrophes, crises of that 
of the first half of the um, of the 20th century. So what does life look like for Spanish refugees in France? They don't stay very long, a lot of them, do they? <laughs> no, it really doesn't look very good. I, I, I am very critical of the, the French authorities, right. but to be fair to the French, I mean, you suddenly get half a million refugees at that stage of, of the, the, the 20th century. It was difficult to cope. So they improvised concentration camps. And when I say concentration camps, I mean, these camps didn't exist. They, they hoarded these people onto the beaches, particularly at Argel-sur-Mer, just across the border into France, uh, 80,000 of them there, and just put um, barbed wire around them. Wow. That was what the concentration camp was. No buildings, nothing else. So of course, you have to remember, this was midwinter. So these people were left on the beach, no water, no sanitary facilities, virtually no food, and it was freezing cold. So they had to dig holes in the sand to, um, to protect themselves from the back. No, it was just absolutely, absolutely unbelievable. Then there were more camps were opened because obviously that, you know, that more and more people arriving, but in the same conditions on beaches or improvised, whatever, but you know, absolute, absolute misery. They, um, the French authorities immediately offered to repatriate those people who would be willing to go back. And given the panorama in France, um, 150,000 immediately returned to Spain. Mm. They immediately, mm. they simply assumed that life could not be that bad in Spain. By June 1940, the German army has reached the Pyrenees, hasn't it? So on the other side of the mountains sits Franco, Hitler's mate. This is deeply troubling, isn't it? Was Spain ever close to joining the war? Hitler expects it of them, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. It's a question of gratitude, as I yeah. as I said before. Without Hitler and Mussolini, Franco is, would not have won. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. I don't think that he would have won the civil war without the help of Franco, without the help of Hitler and Mussolini. So he owes them this great debt. But um, he, he also has very close ideological affinities. He, he, he sees himself perhaps not quite an out-and-out an out fascist, but very extreme right authoritarian. And, um, and as well, he's, he's tempted. He, he wants to, um, to recreate the Spanish Empire in North Africa. He thinks that if he joins with the Germans and the Italians, he'll be given compensation in North Africa. And of course, he also wants to, um, to win back Gibraltar. Gibraltar cannot be forgotten. He also feels that if, um, if he sides with the Germans, they will help him recover. So he's, he's very close to it. Uh, on the other hand, th there are things that worry him. He's, um, he, he has this um, iconic meeting with Hitler in the French town of Endaya in Spanish, on the border between France and Spain, where they discuss Spain joining the, um, the war effort. And both men are extremely frustrated, Hitler and Franco, because neither can actually get guarantees from the other of what they want. Uh, and that's really the, the, the crunch point where Franco decides that he's not going to join the, the war effort. But, but he is very, very tempted. If the Germans had offered him what he wanted, then he would have declared war on Britain. And yet the, the Spanish Republicans elected to fight. How did that come about and, and why? Surely that's renewing the fight against fascism. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think the, the, the Republicans, 
at, at this stage, a lot of the Republicans that were still in France had left the camps. Okay, and they had joined, they, they were working in um, industry, they were working in agriculture, they were filling the gap of, of young French men who'd been conscripted because of the approach of the Second World War. Okay, and they also joined um, special labor groups that were employed to, um, to, <coughs> to help with the preparations. Uh, there, there were special regiments set up by the French to um, to supplement the um, the French army and so on, so the, the Spanish people were beginning to spread out. They spread out from the camps. Okay, for them, this this the Second World War wasn't a new war. It was simply an extension of what they'd been fighting before. They didn't see themselves as having a choice. It was just the natural thing. In fact, they didn't refer to the Spanish Civil War as the Spanish Civil War. They referred to it as the Spanish War, the first battle the first fight against international fascism. The, the, it's interesting, the, the French, um, actually, I'm jumping the gun. I'm sorry, I'm going too far. <laughs> it's getting overexcited. It's okay, we'll get there, we'll get there. Okay, let's, um, let's have a look at some of the various experiences then of Spanish Republicans during the Second World War. Uh, start, let's start with Dunkirk, because there are Spaniards evacuated from Dunkirk and also who serve in Norway as well. So this is the early part of the war. How does that come about? Yeah, uh, so, so some of the Spanish Republicans who had actually joined uh, the French army, the French Foreign Legion, these work groups that were acting as supplementary sappers and so on for the French army followed the French army to, to Dunkirk and therefore were um, evacuated with them. Not, not very many, not very many to be fair, but mm. at the same time, uh, a lot of French Republicans still in the south of France had joined the French Foreign Legion as a way out of the camp. Oh, sorry. There's just so many things that I have to say. Sorry. You have to remember as well that these people were battle-hardened veterans. They were really, really good soldiers. They'd been fighting for three years in very difficult conditions, and they were very, very good soldiers. So they were welcomed with open arms by the French Foreign Legion. When the British and the French um, took the decision to um, occupy Norway, uh, the French decided that they would use... Uh, a division of the French Foreign Legion in the attack on Norway. And that's really how the, um, the Spanish Republicans ended up in Norway. They were transferred as part of the Foreign Legion into France, from North Africa into France and then to Britain. And then from Britain, they went, to, they went to Norway. And they fought along with the British and um, very successfully, as I say, brilliant soldiers, recklessly courageous, uh, but then, as we know, the, um, the operations in Norway were cancelled. They were cancelled because the Germans at this point were ready to attack France. And so the, the, the British and the French decided the time had come to pull out of Norway and to concentrate their efforts in France, in the Battle of France. Okay. Um, and then enter Ian Fleming of James Bond fame and Operation Goldeneye. Um, what's that? What's that about? Uh, Goldeneye is, a, is, if you like, an umbrella operation. It's, mm. uh, so, so we really have to now fast forward. Yeah. So the, the Germans occupy France. 
they divide France into the two, two zones, the southern zone being the Vichy, where the Vichy regime was, and um, a large number of uh, the Republicans were there in the south of Spain, south of France, in the Vichy area. But of course, at this point, the Germans had reached the Pyrenees. The Germans were there. Uh, and so the, the, the British intelligence forces panicked because they were, they were aware. Maybe today we're, we're not quite so aware of just how important Gibraltar was. Mm. But in the Second World War, Gibraltar was absolutely crucial. It was the gateway to the, um, to the Mediterranean. And uh, Britain was dependent upon the, the supply bases at Malta, the Suez Canal, and so on. So Gibraltar was absolutely fundamental. And so when Hitler reached the Pyrenees, the British intelligence services panicked. If, 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 he, if he took Gibraltar, that would be a, a, a critical setback for the British. So they, um, Ian Fleming of the Naval Intelligence um, Service came up with this um, plan, this, this umbrella plan to organize the intelligence and sabotage on the Iberian Peninsula if the Germans crossed the Pyrenees and went for, went for Gibraltar. I think Gibraltar still is hugely important. I think it's it's not as, perhaps the importance isn't as well known, but I think it's still, um, yeah, politically and physically very important. What's brilliant as well is that you think about operations that do go ahead in World War II. And for every operation that does go ahead, there's others, there's like myriad other contingencies that don't. Uh, there are lots of other contingencies involving Spain and the Spanish, aren't there? Operation Relator, uh, which is more commonly known as Ali Barber and the 40 Thieves. Why is this? Um, I, on, I, I don't know why it's called Ali Barber. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I did spend some time once in Kew Gardens, no, sorry, not Kew Gardens, in Kew, the National Archives, Yeah, trying to work out where they came up with all these names. There are extraordinary names, and I'm afraid I had no luck at all. I, I, I don't know why it's called that. Um, but there were, under the umbrella of Operation um, GoldenEye, there were several plans. One was um, Operation Sconce, which was what the British would do if Hitler invaded, um, invaded Spain with the support of Franco. Okay. In other words, if Franco opened the frontier and let the Germans through. And the other one was Operation Sprinkler, which is exactly the same, except if Franco resisted the German invasion. So you've got these two parallel plans. One if, they, if the Germans and the Spanish collaborate, and one if they don't. Okay, And part of this as well was Operation Relator, which is where the British plan to drop um, a number of uh, elite officers into Spain, who would then disperse throughout the um, throughout the Iberian Peninsula and organise resistance in the case of a of a German invasion. Okay, mm. there's a there's another even more exotic operation that never happened, uh, which is Operation Tracer, which was the authorities in Gibraltar decided that they were in grave danger. They, you know, the Germans were rampant throughout Europe. Who was going to stop them? And so they assumed that there was a very strong likelihood that the Germans would take Gibraltar. So they came up with Operation Tracer, which they, where they were going to um, bury a group of observers in a cave at the top of the rock of Gibraltar. 
close with supplies, obviously water and food and so on, close the entrance to the cave and leave them there. And they were going to stay there for as long as they could possibly survive, watching the Straits of Gibraltar and sending intelligence back to um, back to Britain. Those caves are still are there. You can visit them. Yeah. Um, have you been? Okay. I have, yeah. There are actually, um, just an aside fact, there are actually more miles of road inside the Rock of Gibraltar than outside it. Um, there, there are quite a lot of caves that you can visit and an awful lot more that you can't. Yeah, there's a huge network. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's fascinating, but as, as, as you said, Alex, it was one of these plans that never... Mm never came about. There's one other plan which I should mention, and that is the Knights of St. George, which is a little bit more famous. It had a little bit of courage and uh, coverage in the British press recently, which was Churchill's plan to bribe Spanish generals. So uh, a lot of money was sent to various members of the Spanish military, uh, diplomatic corps and so on, to bribe them to argue with Franco on the advantages of staying neutral and of resisting any approach by Hitler to invade Spain and therefore grab Gibraltar. Cost a lot of money. We don't know know how effective it was, simply because history shows us that that the Germans didn't invade and didn't take Gibraltar. So how effective that was, we don't know. It's nuts, isn't it? You've got to, you just... in desperation, anything, anything that would tip it in your favour. Absolutely. No, no, you're right. That, that was Churchill's attitude. Mm. Churchill was just desperate. He, he said victory at all costs, at any cost, I think, or at all costs, anything. But to, to answer your first question, so a previous question, Franco really was very close to joining the war. The British were panicking about it because, because of the importance of Gibraltar. And... Um, it was very much on the edge, very much on the edge. Why is Barbarossa a win for Franco? Uh, Barbarossa, the, um, the invasion of the Soviet Union in June 1941, um, solved a big problem for Franco. As, as we mentioned before, the Germans expected some gratitude from him. And mm-hmm. they did. And, and Franco was, I have very bad, a very bad opinion of Franco. <laughs> but he was very canny. He yeah. was not a stupid man. Um, he he was worried. He wasn't quite so sure that the Germans were going to um, to win, and he was very worried by the Battle of Britain. He felt that that was more decisive than the Germans had actually realised, and he was also worried about the intervention of the United States at some some point in the future. So he was very very wary of declaring war on Britain. However much he wanted to, until he got guarantees, he was very worried. So when when the the Germans attacked the Soviet Union, this gave him a new option because he felt now there were two wars. There was the war in the West and the war on communism. And of course, he was the greatest anti-communist in Europe. And this gave him an opening. This gave him a chance to show his gratitude to Hitler by supporting him on the front, on the Eastern Front against Russia. He was also under some pressure at home in Spain because there were people in Spain as well who expected him to show a bit more gratitude to Hitler and were more, more pro-Nazi than he was. So this was an option to show them as well that his solidarity with the, um, with the Germans. 
he does, as you say, he so he commits troops to the Eastern Front. What is the DEV and what do they get up to? Yeah, the, the, the important thing to say here is that they were volunteers. Right. But you're never quite sure in a dictatorship like Franco's dictatorship. Absolutely, yeah. Volunteers and who aren't volunteers, but officially they were volunteers. Uh, it is the División Española de Voluntarios, the, the, the Spanish Volunteer Division. And um, immediately after Barbarossa, uh, the, the dictatorship uh, makes a call for people to volunteer to go and fight with the Germans. And there's a, a big answer, you know, 18,000 people uh, enroll immediately to, to go and fight. Uh, so there's quite a response to it. And... Um, and off they go. They're, they're, they're known as the Blue Division because uh, they were given the uniform in Spain, which involved a blue shirt. And the mm. blue shirt was the symbol of the fascist party. Like in there was the, the black shirts and the brown shirts and so on. Well, in Spain, it was the blue shirts. So they were equipped with these blue shirts and therefore they became known as the, as the Blue Division. So, so they, they went to, to, they got to Bavaria, they were trained. Uh, they took an oath of allegiance to Hitler. They were given Wehrmacht uniforms and they were sent to Moscow. They were going to liberate Moscow. Uh, on the way to Moscow, they were diverted. They were sent to Leningrad and they spent the, the, the war uh, participating in the siege of Leningrad. That was where the Division Athol was based. Okay? The siege of Leningrad lasted 900 days. Population of Leningrad, of course, is now St. Petersburg. Uh, Leningrad, the siege lasted 900 days. The people were reduced to starvation, cold, disease, but they resisted. Uh, the Division Athol, uh, again, this is the second time I've said it, but they, they fought with reckless courage. They were they, just <laughs> not frightened of death. They went, the, the, the Germans couldn't believe it. Hitler, in a conversation, said that he was desperate about the Spanish because they were dirty, untidy, always late, and couldn't even clean their own rifles, but were brilliant soldiers. And that the, the, the SS fighting the siege said that they always wanted their flanks covered by the Division of Thule because here were people that they could trust to, um, to fight to the last man. So that was the Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So the anecdotes that you've got in about the Spaniards in the Soviet army and the Spanish airmen too, haven't you? Um, will you tell us about those? Yeah, sure. So there were there, there were two different groups of, um, of Republicans in the Soviet Union. There were those that had gone to the Soviet Union for training. So they, in the military schools, in the Air Force schools and so on. And there were all the academies rather than schools. Sorry. And there were also the Communist Party leadership 
that had left Spain into France across the Pyrenees at the time of the defeat, who were uh, evacuated then to the Soviet Union. So there were these there were these two two groups. The um, uh, the pilots uh, who were uh, doing their training in the academy there um, were involved in one particular anecdote, which is um, which is worthy of note, and that is that when Stalin was invited to attend the conference at Tehran with um, with Churchill and Roosevelt, he was terrified of flying. So they took him as close as they possibly could within the Soviet Union uh, to Baku, which is now in um, As Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan. Thank you yeah. very much. Uh, they got him as close to Tehran as possible, and then they flew him from there to Tehran. And it was, uh, there was a group of Spanish pilots that accompanied him to Tehran, okay? And when they arrived in Tehran, he was extremely grateful and he wanted to thank them to show his gratitude. So he went over to where these pilots had landed and they were just standing around and he gave his thanks and said, but why are you wearing your pajamas? There is another story which says not pajamas, your, your um, underwear. But it's the same point. In other words, these people were, you know, in such poor conditions, they didn't even have a uniform. And there they were flying the, 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 um, the, the, the guard. To, for, so immediately Stalin ordered that these people should be given. Uh, in a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Proper uniform, at the very least. The person with the worst Spanish in the room has landed this. Brilliant. He was Juan Pujol Garcia. And why is he important? Okay. Um, he was a Catalan. He was during the Spanish Civil War. He was conscripted into the Republican Army. He didn't like it, so he deserted, crossed over into the nationalist area, joined the nationalist uh, army, but claimed that he, throughout the Civil War, had never shot uh, uh, a gun in anger. Right. Civil War was over. He decided. Uh, rather bizarrely, that he didn't like Franco, and he certainly didn't like Hitler and Mussolini, but he was also anti-communist. So he was in a very difficult situation. But he decided, I'm sorry, I'm accelerating now because I appreciate that it's so. Um, he decided that the thing that he could do to, to help the, the Allied campaign would, to become a, would be to become a spy. So he approached the British Embassy in Madrid and offered his services as a spy. They, they said no, weren't interested, didn't care. Right. Okay. So then instead, he thought, I'll approach the Germans. So he approached the German embassy in Madrid and offered his services to them. His plan was always to serve the Allies, but he thought that if he could integrate the German intelligence services, he could help the Allies by passing secrets to them. The Germans were far more interested in him and, um, and decided to use him and gave him a code name, Arabelle. 
he told the Germans that he was going to go to Britain and he would serve in Britain as an agent and send them intelligence. And so they gave him all the things that he needed, including money, and off he went. In fact, he got as far as Portugal. And from Lisbon, he contacted his German agents in Madrid and said, I'm in Britain. I will start sending you intelligence immediately, as he did. This now begins to sound like a Graham Greene novel, because what he did was simply invent intelligence to send to the Germans. Okay, so then he approaches the British embassy in Lisbon and tells them what he's done and says, now will you use me? No, they say, still not interested. <laughs> to be fair to them, they've made major breakthroughs in uh, code breaking and so on at Bletchley Park, and they're making so much progress that they're very worried about this character who might be working for the Germans, and you know they, they didn't want any leaks, so they were particularly cautious. Anyway, eventually, it turns out that the Americans and various Britons realized that this man really could be quite useful. So they fly him out of Portugal to Gibraltar and from Gibraltar to London. He's given a handler, Thomas Harris. Uh, he's put in touch with the 20 committee, the double cross committee, and it's decided to use him as a double agent. He sets up this completely fictitious network of spies in Britain or something like 25 uh, spies who've also got their own network. So there's this, this vast network across Britain, completely fictitious, which the British then use to feed the Germans disinformation. Okay, so this goes on. They just, the, the Germans are so impressed by this high level intelligence that, oh, sorry, I can say Pujol has been named by the British intelligence services Garbon because they thought he was such a brilliant actor he deserved the name of the most famous actress in the world. So they called him Garbo. Okay, and uh, they fed all this extraordinary disinformation to the Germans. The most important, and this is why I think that he was one of the most crucial characters of the Second World War, his role in D-Day. Because again, in the modern world, we tend to think that there was something inevitable about the Allied victory after D-Day. In 1944, there was nothing inevitable about it. It was touch and go. The British and the Americans were really not sure whether they would be able to hold a, a beachhead in Normandy, particularly if the Germans sent reinforcements quickly to Normandy. So they came up with another operation, Operation Fortitude, which was to convince the Germans that the attack on Normandy was a feint. The real attack was going to come at Calais, which of course was logical because it was so much closer uh, to Britain, and of course closer to Berlin. Once they got there, they'd be that much closer to Berlin as well. So this operation was designed to persuade Hitler and the Germans that D-Day was just a, just a, a feint. And key to this was Pujol, Garbo, who sent all these messages to, um, to Berlin, telling them not to believe anything about D-Day, that it was Patton who was going to lead the main invasion force. Patton had this huge army in Kent. They were ready to attack, but under no, in no circumstances should the Germans send reinforcements to Normandy. They would just be sucked in, et cetera, et cetera. And on it went. And it worked. Uh, after D-Day, it was a long time after D-Day before the Germans were actually, actually realized what was happening and sent reinforcements. And by that point, it was too late. The, the, the Allies had a beachhead in, in Normandy, 
And, and we don't know how many lives that deception saved. Yeah. It's, it's, it's impossible to calculate. But I think I would go further. Um, this is a personal feeling. I, I, I wonder if the very success of the Normandy landings depended on Operation Fortitude, not just saving lives, but I, I feel that if the Germans had reacted quickly and had sent their, their elite SS forces to Normandy, they could have driven the Allies back. That's a bad thing about, does it? So, so this is why, for me, Pujol Garbo is one of the most crucial figures of the whole of the, the Second World War. He's also one of the few people who was decorated by the Germans, who gave him the Iron Cross, <laughs> and the British, who gave him an MBE for his services. Suckers. <laughs> even after, even after D-Day, the Germans kept on believing him. It's quite brilliant, isn't it? They, they kept using him because they, they used him to, because at this point they were sending the V1s and the V2 bombers, bombs over. It was difficult for them to, to calibrate, to work out exactly where they, was, they were landing. So they asked him for intelligence and he gave them, of course, completely false intelligence. So they readjusted, they recalibrated their V1s on the basis of his false information. So they got it even, even more wrong so these V1s and V2s were coming down in countryside rather than on the big cities. So this, this guy was um, this guy was big. What is the Deuxième? Um, why, why does it factor into our story? It's a French division. Why, why does that factor into our story? Okay. I really am going to cut this short now because it starts in Africa. Okay. Uh, very quickly, at the, uh, at the beginning of the war, de Gaulle sets up the Free French. Uh, he sends an army under General Leclerc, a very famous French general, to French Equatorial Africa. They fight their way up through Africa, liberating Chad, Libya. They join up with, um, with um, the Eighth Army uh, and they finish uh, in North Africa with the Eighth Army. Uh, then they are transferred with the French to Britain. Uh, the forces that had been fighting uh, with Leclerc were now formed into what was called the Deuxième Brigade, the, the, the Second Brigade, which was the great um, French army in Britain. Okay, um, I'm going too quickly. Uh, so they were, they were ready, they were prepared to join the Allied um, uh, invasion of Normandy. Uh, they were equipped by the, um, the American army, so they were given Sherman tanks and they were given these brilliant vehicles, which were called half tracks, which were wheels at the front and caterpillar tracks at the back. They were really brilliant military vehicles because you steered with the wheels at the front, but the, um, the, the, the tracks at the back gave you greater traction and so on. Uh, and they were, they were ready in 1944. The British and the Americans were reluctant to allow the French, as I, when I say French, of course, now I'm referring to, as well to the Spanish Republicans who are an integral part of the French army. Uh, yeah. The British and the Americans were loath to let them participate in, in D-Day. So they, the, the French forces did not actually arrive in France until August. Okay. Their priority, of course, is the liberation of France, and that begins with the liberation of Paris. The British, their priority is to, is to destroy the V1 and V2 missile sites on the north coast. 
and the priority of the Americans, Eisenhower, the, the commander, was to get to, 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 to Berlin as quickly as possible. So they weren't interested in Paris. De Gaulle negotiated and said, no, we, we must take Paris. And Eisenhower very generously said that he would allow a French force, French, French regiments to liberate Paris. It was a very generous thing for him to do. So that's how it happened. So the Deuxième, the Deuxième Blindé, the second armored division, heads directly for, for Paris. Okay. So at the end of the end of August, they're ready. The French resistance rise up in the center of Paris. And the Deuxième Blindé, they think that it's very that it's urgent for them to get into France as quickly as possible to make contact with the resistance. So they send um, a company, and I think it's random. I don't know. I can't believe it was anything else. They chose the ninth company, La Nueve, which was made up almost entirely of Spanish Republicans. The commander, Captain, Captain Dron, was French, but the troops were Spanish. And so they were ordered as quickly as possible to get into the center of Paris and make contact with the resistance. So the first Allied troops to get into Paris, almost in the sense of to liberate Paris, were Spanish Republicans, who drove through with these half-tracks, waving Spanish Republican flags, singing Spanish songs, etc. And they made the first contact with, um, with the French resistance, which is extraordinary. It really is. Um, I think we should just quickly pay tribute to Rafael Gomez Nieto too, because he comes up in your book and that was quite something else. Who was he and what did he say about his role in all of this? Yeah, so, he, so if you like, he's, he's a symbol because he was the last surviving member of this company, La Nueve, the ninth, the ninth company. And he died uh, last year uh, in Strasbourg, 20, uh, 2020, of COVID, coronavirus. Bloody COVID. Yeah, well, he was, you know, inevitable. He was in a, a residence, and um, so it was. It was very sad. But he, he is a symbol. He he he's everything. He fought in the Spanish Civil War. He fought at this vital battle of the Ebro. He crossed the Pyrenees with the refugees when they left in in thirty nine. He was incarcerated on the beach in Argel sur Mer. He escaped. He went to North Africa with his father. He joined. The, um, the French forces in North Africa. He was transferred to Britain with the, the Zien Blindé. Uh, he landed on the beaches as part of Patton's army. And he was one of the first, literally the first into the center of Paris to make contact with the resistance. Having done that with the rest of his company, he then continued, the, the, the war hadn't finished. So he ended his war in Berchtesgaden, in Hitler's Eagle's Nest. They got that far. Before the um, before the Germans surrendered, so he was actually in Hitler's eagle nest when the surrender was announced, and he appropriated a tea set and a chess set, which he had until his dying day, which he kept very proudly uh, with him. Uh, yeah, I, I, um, for all that, I mean, the, the, I mean, this is this man a hero? I mean, <laughs> the great fighting fascism for nine years. Yeah. He was asked by a journalist towards the end of his life to define war. And he said, war, he said, people kill, 
people die. It's horrible. That's that's all he had to say about about no glory, no honor, no, just. He sounds like quite the man. That's why I wanted to mention him. So um, finally, let's talk about the Battle of Valderan. Um, it's the culmination of Republican involvement in the Second World War, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah yes, yes, it is. So the, the, the Spanish have been, the Spanish Republicans have been very active in the French resistance. In fact, I mean, more than anything else, they, they, they almost initiated it because at, at, the, at the beginning, the French were quite ambiguous about this because they were in the, in the south of France because they weren't sure about Pétain and the Vichy regime, we weren't absolutely sure whether this was that bad, whereas the Spanish knew it was bad. The Spanish just wanted to fight fascism, wherever it was, whoever was, they just wanted to fight. But so the French resistance developed, of course. Uh, they were, the, these forces were fundamental in liberating Southwest France because the Allies never reached Southwest France. So there were no Allied armies there. So it was the resistance with the French Republicans who liberated Southwest France. So towards the autumn of 1944, there are 10,000 heavily armed, by now incredibly battle-hardened Republicans, ready to take on Franco. Okay? They assumed, rightly or wrongly, that the Allies were going to help them. They thought the Allies had they helped the Allies. They simply assumed that the Allies would liberate Spain. They defeated Hitler, they defeated Mussolini. Uh, Roosevelt had made a promise that the Americans would leave not a vestige of fascism, not a vestige of dictatorships in Europe. So there, there it was, Madrid, Franco, fascist dictatorship. But they decided that they needed to nudge the Allies. So what they thought they would do was to establish a bridgehead across the Pyrenees. So they chose a place called the Val d'Aran, if you ever want a holiday and you like mountains, I can strongly recommend the Valley of Aran, Val d'Aran. It is one of the most beautiful places in Spain, it's right at the top of the Pyrenees. It's very popular now for skiing resorts and so on. But the advantage of this place was that it was very easy to access it from France, but very difficult to access it from Catalonia and Spain. So the idea was that they would invade, that the Republicans would invade the Val d'Aran, take it, and hold it and almost suck in the Allied armies. And they also felt that the population, when the population in Catalonia realized what was happening, they would rise up and support this, um, this liberation movement. So uh, in October, 1944, they sent in a first uh, force of 4,000 Republicans, Mac by this point, they were calling themselves the Mackie. Of course, some, they were also called guerrilla. It's one of the ironic things that guerrilla, of course, is a Spanish word. They didn't actually call themselves guerrillas as much as they called themselves Mackie. It's not something I've ever quite understood. But anyway, 4,000 Mackie crossed the border into the Val d'Aran. And they set up their headquarters in a little village called Borsot, and they raised the Republican flag, etc., uh, etc. Et okay. They failed to take the capital, Vieja, and they failed to take the one pass that makes the Valderan accessible from the rest of Spain. Those, those two failures are absolutely crucial. Th their plan was that 
within weeks it would start to snow and there is no way that the, the, the Franco's armies would be able to attack the valley because of the conditions throughout the winter and therefore it would be relatively easy to hold this, this bridgehead. But they failed to take the pass and therefore Franco's army began to mass, we don't know how many, but you know, many more than the, the Mackie, ready to, um, to counterattack. So after about seven or eight days, uh, they decided to, um, to withdraw. The, um, the people had not risen up to support them. The, the officers found that their troops were reluctant to open fire on Spanish troops because they felt that they were brothers. They were, it was difficult for them to start shooting people who had been conscripted into this army and might well have been Republican sympathizers anyway. So they happily shot at the Guardia Civil and the police. They didn't have any problem doing that because after all, these were professionals who'd chosen it. But it, the long and the short of it, they failed to take the capital. They failed to take the main Bonaigua Pass and Franco's army is about to counterattack. So they withdraw. And that's it. That is the end of the, the Battle of Iran. And then we've got another, what, 40 odd years of fascism, 30 odd years of fascism in Spain. Yeah, that's a huge story. Yeah, which Why? you've also done a book about. We should get you back to talk about that um, because, as you say, it's, it's immense. Um, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about your new book. Remind everybody of the title. Uh, the title is the, uh, the Spanish Republicans and the Second World War. It's brilliant. It's out now uh, and it is available on the History Hack bookshop. So you can jump on there and buy it. It's fantastic. Uh, I think the best history is the one that fills gaps you didn't even know existed. I don't know about you, Kate, but this one absolutely qualifies. Yeah, definitely. I've, uh, I've learned loads today and there's loads that I'm going to go away and, and try to find out more about. Definitely. Yeah. Thank okay. you very much. I do apologise for being so accelerated. There's just so much that I want. To yeah, <laughs> it's fine. But people will love Not it. We'll have to have you back to talk some more. OK, very nice to talk to you. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 